This is Lawyer Up. I'm John Gonzalez with my law partner, Jack Derora, talking to you from a socially safe distance in a sterile office with adequate ventilation in Columbus, Ohio. Jack and I are business and trial lawyers with the B Hall Law Group, and today we're talking with Toby Hoover, retired executive director and founder of the Ohio Coalition Against Gun Violence. Welcome, Toby. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. Maybe you can start tell, and tell our listeners um, uh, how you founded the coalition. Well, um, I am the survivor of a gun violence victim. Uh, my first husband was killed in the place where he worked uh, by someone that had escaped from a prison, bought a gun on a street corner and came in and did a robbery and he got shot and he was <clears throat> killed. Um, I had a couple little kids, they were four and eight years old. And I also had some friends and knew some people that were you know, very interested in social justice issues. So years later, um, they all came together and said, you know, let's bring a lot of people around the city together and see what happens. And so we did, and we talked about a few things. And uh, I think the first meeting, there were like 50 people. And then after that, um, we opposed a couple of things in the state of Ohio. And they said, well, are we finished now? And I said, no way. <laughs> We've got a group together now, and we're working together, and we're going to continue. And so that was about 1995. And we've been, uh, you know, just going strong ever since. We moved from a local community organization to a statewide organization uh, in about 2000. And so that changed sort of the dynamics of how we work in our organization. A long 25 years of working on this. <laughs> and um, I think when you're those people that I know that are also have survived a lost a loved one, um, it's, you just can't get rid of it. Um, it's like, oh, say, okay, I, I quit now. But you, <laughs> you can't really do that because it's part of uh, so much of what you believe that we can fix. And so uh, you kind of hang in there. Is most of your work with the legislature or is it, um, you know, in communities? Uh, how would you describe uh, where you're most active and where your group's most active? Well, we've done programs over the years, uh, you know, in the schools, with the schools, uh, you know, with public health people. Uh, we still try to pay a role in that by bringing them together on different uh, talks, etc. But our main um, thing has been to educate the public because we feel as though most people don't know what the gun laws are. They certainly don't know what they're doing down there in the state house. So when you tell them some of the things that are, have come up, they're shocked. And so it, we feel as though it's, it's our job to give people those resources and that information. And then if we can encourage them to be part of fixing the problem, even better. Toby, your personal experience in creating this coalition reminds me of a number of other situations where one's personal experience has been the motivating factor. And, you know, I commend you for turning a tragic situation into a positive experience for the rest of Ohioans. You're tied to an entity called States United to Prevent Gun Violence. I haven't really paid attention to that. Okay. Um, that also came about in the late 90s. 
and I was part of uh, forming that group. And there are now 32 state affiliates. Uh, we're all totally independent. Uh, we don't necessarily all do the same things or even work on same uh, pieces of legislation all the time. Uh, we're there to help one another. So it's more of a, a service and a support organization, um, but uh, very active. Uh, so uh, can play a role in talking to the other national groups, et cetera. So we're affiliate of, uh, of States United. I always get the impression that one of the paradigms of the gun lobby is those gun grabbers want to take our guns away. Are you looking to take guns away from people? I usually answer them with, oh, yes, that's always been my intention. So therefore, when you see me personally knocking on your door and asking for your weapons, you'll hand them over, right? And they say, well, of course not. You know, that's not going to happen. And I said, yeah, there are more guns in the country than there are people. Not, so it's impossible to even try to imagine everybody's guns being taken away. And I don't know of um, any place that was actually ever trying to do that with any legislation or anything. Some guns from some people, yes. All guns from all people, no. Can't happen, can't happen with the Ohio uh, Constitution, can't happen with the United States Constitution. Toby, I am a uh, uh, card-carrying CCW permit card carrier. And um, I was actually very surprised at the lack of training it took uh, and education really to get a CCW in Ohio. When it first came out, uh, my wife and I did it because we wanted to know what the process was and wanted to understand it and wanted to uh, uh, just be uh, conscientious gun owners. And that's really not an educational course. Does your um, coalition get involved in that at all? Well, you know, that's really where we started was, um, you know, that was the first piece of legislation policy that, that we fought against and uh, starting back in 1997 uh, was concealed carry. And um, I, I still am against it. So you and I don't agree there. <laughs> and I'm for a lot of reasons. We could probably have another podcast on that one. But, um, you know, it, it's one of those things that... Um, everybody thinks that it's one thing and it's not. Um, you know, when it finally passed in 2004, um, it had a lot of provisions on it about how much training there would be, where you could carry, where you couldn't, uh, who could, who couldn't. And year by year, the gun lobby has come in and, and changed it so that it gets weaker and weaker and you know, less education, less training, and, uh, you know, even some legislators that will suggest every year that there be no training and uh, people can go online and get their, their permits to carry uh, with no training. They can get them from other states and we give reciprocity. So there's all kinds of loopholes there. And, the, you know, the people that wanted it fought for it so hard because they, they really, I, I believe that they uh, were convinced that everybody that was going to carry was going to act like they did, which was, um, you know, they, they were gun owners, but they had been longtime gun owners. They did a lot of training. They, you know, believed in that um, and all, but, you know, I, I tried to convince them everybody that's going to carry is not like you and it's going to be too easy to go out and get one. And, uh, you know, who do you, who do you want to say, well, 
that person is is good to carry today, stable enough, and they're going to stay that way. So it's a it's a real iffy proposition, and the more places that people can carry, the worse we make our culture. I mean, do you really need to carry into church? I remember when the CCW legislation first came out, there were the prophecies about more gun violence as mm -hmm. a result of CCW. Have those prophecies turned true? You know, I don't know that you can ever say um, this many things happened because somebody went and got their, their carry. Um, you know, there's a long list of the Violence Policy Center is a national organization that keeps tabs on how many crimes are committed with people that have concealed carry permits. Um, but, you know, did it make people go out and buy more guns? Uh, and, you know, as you've watched the politics in recent years, you know, one side or the other will say this is going to happen or they're going to come take all your guns away. It promotes fear. It promotes people going out there and getting more guns and then saying I should have it with me all the time to protect myself and my family, etc. So just that increase in numbers of ownership, carrying, immediate access to it. Uh, you know, we have to have to remember all the time that the most most gun deaths are suicides. So for me, it's always been if it easy access to something, we're kind of contributing to that. We ought to make it a little more difficult. The other uh, thing that comes to mind when you talk about do you need to carry in a house of worship or in a school? Um, making those gun-free zones helps the criminals that will be there with a gun, whether there's laws or not. How do you respond to that type of uh, mentality? Well, the numbers out there tell us that's not true. Um, and that's just not where most, most gun violence happens. As a matter of fact, most gun violence happens between two people who know one another in their own home. So it's, you know, it, it, uh, it doesn't seem like it a lot of times, but uh, schools are still the safest place for our kids to be. Now I have to, you know, I have to qualify that with saying when you throw COVID in there too, I'm not real sure about that. But, um, you know, that, that's not a, that dangerous of a place for children to be. And I know we've had some really ugly mass shootings in schools. Those are not the norm. That's not where the 30,000 plus people get killed every year with firearms. Toby, if there were two or three things that you could achieve to reduce gun violence, what would those two or three things be? Well, about, uh, let's see, 2006, the legislature passed preemption. And when they did that, they took all the rights away from communities. And I believe very strongly that communities know themselves. Uh, and Ohio is very complicated with all of that between our rural areas and, and then, you know, our, our big cities. And so they ought to be able to say that you can do different things in those places. And once they took all those rights away, they did away with about, I think we figured about 88 different local laws in 20 different cities. So it really tied their hands. I mean, um, I know um, Columbus had passed an assault weapon ban. I think Cincinnati had one, Cleveland had one. There were those kind of things in Toledo. Um, you know, we had a, a law that said you had to keep 
your gun's safely locked up away from children. Uh, and so once you did away with all of those, you were totally dependent upon the state house. And the state house was not about to pass anything that was going to have any restrictions on guns. So it kind of leaves these people, you know, looking for, for other ways to solve the problem. But they're, I, I feel as though local rights have been taken away with preemption. So that, for that, that one is a big one for me. Uh, I also believe, uh, I think there's laws out now that they call ERPO laws. Some people call them red flag laws, uh, where um, a police officer um, or a family member can uh, go to court and say, you know, this person is really a danger to themselves or to someone else. And that person can have a court hearing. And if that's what they decide, they can take those guns away from them temporarily. I mean, every law that's been passed across the country on this, it's, it's you know, any place from three months to six months, a couple of states are a year. And then you have to have another hearing and you have to, you know, see if that person is now stabilized or if they still can't have them and then it can go for another period of time. So it's not you know, but when you start saying, well, we're going to take somebody's get guns away and everybody sort of stops listening <laughs> instead of realizing that it's just a safety precaution now. I feel as though that would help the suicide. It would help the domestic violence situation. Uh, so you're really looking out for others. You're, you're trying to protect each other, even though they might be gun owners. So it, I think that's important that it can happen. Um, as far as the third thing is concerned, our big thing has always been um, not necessarily any one piece of legislation, because there are many of them right now rolling around down there in the state house. But um, the combination of them becomes just, you know, um, almost so dangerous that you can't hardly even think about it. So, if, for instance, if you're going to take away all the training for concealed carry, and then you're going to say, well, we're going to have permitless carry. You don't even have to get a permit to carry. Uh, what happened to the training? Okay. So it, it, they kind of uh, accumulate on, on top of one another. But for us, it's always been, how do we change the culture? How do we change the fact that everybody thinks they need to have a gun? They're, uh, the fear factor, everybody's afraid of one another. And that's getting worse, not better. And so therefore the solutions are with a firearm. And so if we have a culture like that, that's also what we're teaching our kids. And so it will continue. So, okay, Toby, your message about culture speaks to messaging. The gun advocates have this strong message about constitutional rights. You're trying to take away my constitutional right as if the second amendment has no limits. Everyone knows there are limits, but it's still a very strong message. So how do you counter that? Well, to start with, everyone doesn't know that is <laughs> part of the problem. But when, uh, when that's the, I call it the excuse that they use, um, I've told legislators that when I've been testifying, uh, the fact that they're just trying to sh throw up some smoke clouds, because uh, most of the time we're not talking about, you know, restricting the Second Amendment at all. For instance, if, if I tell you that if you have guns in your home, but you have to keep them locked up away from minor children, uh, you know, that doesn't apply. Uh, so, and that's most of the time. Uh, so it, 
uh, is it's sort of an excuse not to go any further. And we've had rulings on it locally, you know, uh, at the federal level, every place that says, you know, it's not true. It is not an unlimited right. But for most, I think people that are just really, um, you know, set on using Second Amendment as an excuse, well, they don't they don't hear that part because they've been convinced that one little thing will lead to another and pretty soon all their guns will be gone. And if you look at what has happened, you can even just look in Ohio if you want. Um, that has not been the case. It's the other way around. Uh, they passed one thing and then every year they pass another little bitty thing that weakens the laws that we already have. We're not in their path and getting even an opportunity <laughs> to pass any stronger laws. Uh, recently, even the governor trying to say, hey, look, you know, there are some things we ought to do. They don't even have hearings. And yet they will go ahead and have hearings on having each school board be able to decide for themselves, even though we have preemption as far as laws, they're willing to turn that around and hand over to the school boards. How much training do you think a teacher or a janitor or whoever uh, needs to have if we say they can carry in the schools? Which is also uh, very secretive again. And that's another thing that, that I don't like about the concealed carry or this that a school board can decide, name people to carry, and they don't have to tell anybody who it is or even if they've decided that. I don't think that that's right for the parents and the children. I, I believe that, you know, you if you're going to send your children to a school, you, you have a right to know whether there's anybody in there that's armed. And you certainly have a right to know whether that person's been trained. So, you know, with police officers, you knew and you knew that they were had to respond to somebody else. But if you're just naming anybody that can come in and do it, it, it's dangerous. So they'll have those hearings, but they don't have hearings on anything that we like. So the, the slippery slope is, is on the side of the gun lobby. Talking about messaging too, there's always this um, message that, you know, places like Chicago or DC <laughs> have these strict gun laws, yet the highest murder rates. And so, you know, we need more guns to bring down the murder rate. How do you respond to that type of, a, of messaging? Well, everything that we've always seen is it, that's because the guns really aren't coming from within that city because they've passed enough laws in most of those places that you're naming uh, that doesn't allow for a, a, a lot of gun stores and a lot of sales to be done actually in the city. They come from places like Ohio that has easier sales and then they transport them there and, and they, you know, they sell them out of their cars just like they do at gun shows or any place else, which you know, basically, if you know, if I want to sell you a gun, um, I can drive down to Columbus and sell you a gun out of the the back of my car, and it's perfectly legal. I don't have to do any background checks. Uh, you know, it, it's okay for me to do that, and um, people don't realize that either. So, if you start judging gun owners, uh, you have to keep in mind how many people got theirs that way versus got went and got a background check, which is another very important issue. It is, and Jack and I were talking about that because I like to go to gun shows. I've um, been around guns all my life, and I was telling him that uh, a couple of years ago I was at a gun show, and I had a vintage rifle that I was looking for a piece for, and I had three or four people stop me, ask me about it, and offer to buy it from me, 
And I told Jack, you know, if I'd been interested in selling it, how would I go about doing a background search or, but I'm pretty sure for that rifle, it wasn't somebody with some type of nefarious, you know, intent that was going to buy it from me. So I guess I was, you know, it, it, when I used to think about it, I thought closing that private sale loophole, maybe that's not such a great idea. It does, totally. Uh, and that, that's been one of the policies that we've supported since our beginning. Uh, and I, I still think it's important, even though there's that many guns out there in circulation, mm -hmm. uh, because that, again, it's one of those places that, that the information is missing to most people, that they don't realize how easy it is to get a gun. Uh, and not go through any kind of background check. So if you don't want criminals to have guns, well, then you have to do a background check. And, you know, and without it, you don't know that. And so it's that easy. And uh, it happens all the time, all the time. But I know New York has kept some numbers, uh, and so has Chicago, as far as how many guns actually come into their cities from other states. We have background check in Ohio. What's the difference with that in universal background checks, if there is a difference? Well, it's a matter of doing a background check on every gun sale versus not. That, yeah, yeah. I mean, there are some background checks uh, done at, you know, at any kind of a dealer. Uh, if he's a federally licensed firearm dealer, they have to do a background check. So they send that in and you have to get approved. But if you're purchasing it from any person that's so-called not in the business of selling firearms, then they don't have to do that background check. We hear a lot of stats that the vast majority of Americans favor universal background checks. I don't know how many times I've seen that in newspapers. But that kind of legislation goes nowhere fast. Why is that? Because the gun lobby is really, really strong, especially in a state like Ohio. They keep things from happening, uh, even when you can get them to um, agree with you, which sometimes they will as far as, well, we'd be okay with, you know, background checks if, um, you know, if we didn't have to tell everybody exactly what gun it was and it didn't have to change hands other than between the two people, etc. cetera. Um, so you try to suggest, well, you know, maybe you could, if you want to sell, you know, John, if you want to sell one of your guns to Jack, well, then you could just go to the sheriff's office or you could go to a dealer and have them do the background check to make sure that they're okay. But in order for the ownership to become the dealers and for him to do the background check, then they say, nope, no way, we're not having any part of that. So it's, um, it, it's one of those things, again, that we're all fearful that the government knows too much about us, which... Um, you know, I, I don't know how you guys feel about that, but uh, I always feel, I feel like they already know everything that they want to know and what, <laughs> what they don't know and they want to know, they can find out. So it, it but it, it's still there with the gun thing. You know, we don't want anybody to know that we have them. I want to go back to this idea of messaging for a moment because messaging is so important. You said 10 or 15 minutes ago that the majority of gun deaths are between, I think you said maybe domestic partners, but it's actually broader. The vast the right. majority of cases that are solved in terms of knowing the assailant are between people who know each other. Yes. So, you know, the chance of being, I used to joke, I'm careful when I say this, I got a greater chance of being shot by my wife than I do being shot by a guy on the street, right? 
That's absolutely right. Why isn't there, why isn't there more? I don't hear much messaging to that effect. I'll bet most people don't know that. I know we've used it over the years a lot um, because uh, I've always told them that um, you know people go and buy guns because they're fearful. And they're fearful that somebody's going to jump out from behind a tree or a building on the street, you know, and shoot them. And you're much more likely to be killed by somebody that knows you, whether it's in your house or your neighborhood or somebody that you work with. And and those numbers are just out there, you know, would show people, you know, wh who knows who and who's. And um, that's something that, you know, people don't want to admit to because it's easier to have a bad guy and a good guy. Instead of you know working on the the anger and the culture, and uh, all the fear that's out there, and that's I mean especially now it's it's getting worse and worse. Uh, everybody's uh, afraid of anybody that's not just like them. So uh, you you know you, whether you want to talk about race or whether you want to talk about religion or nationality, whatever. There, if you're not just like me, then I might be afraid of you. Now, if you add a gun to that, and then you add a little fear and anger, you have you have a disaster. So we have to work on all of those things. Am I correct that once a gun is sold by a licensed gun dealer, it's almost impossible to trace the location of that gun afterwards? In other words, if it gets sold in a private sale and then another private sale, you have mm -hmm. no clue where that gun is, right? That's correct, except that they do do a marvelous job of tracing guns and know you know where they started and who ended up owning them. Um, I, I'm not privileged exactly how they do that, but uh, they're it's more successful than you think it is. Really? Yeah, yeah, uh, and you know that that's another place where if you had uh, universal background checks, you know, mandatory on every gun sale then somebody would be keeping a record of that five, six, seven sales down the line that happens with guns. And uh, unfortunately, uh, John, the guns are going to outlive you and I. So they're going to be around forever. They don't wear out. So, um, you know, we ought to be able to keep track of them somehow. And in the couple of states that they have licensing, um, you know, it's, it's successful because people are take ownership and responsibility for having them. So they know that it's going to be traced to them. Where are we stand your ground legislation? Well, you know, um, Ohio has always allowed someone to uh, defend themselves if they're really in danger. And Ohio has a law that allows you to go ahead and shoot first if, you're, if somebody's in your home. And then they added to that, well, if somebody was in your car, because they didn't have the right to be there. But that's all of those pieces, you know, have gone from you have a right to defend yourself to, you know, you don't have to ask any questions in your home or in your car. And now anywhere that you have a right to be. And the problem with it is it's written so that it says, you know, any reasonable person that thinks that they are in fear of someone else can go ahead and take action, lethal action, without even considering. And that's what's gotten worse this time around than even in, in former bills, is that you don't have to consider whether your life's really in danger. If you think it is, you can go ahead and use the lethal force. We believe so strongly in the fact that, um, again, as a culture <laughs> and as uh, good people, 
that, yeah, you do have to consider it all the time. Just because you're a gun owner doesn't give you the right to decide all of those things. And, you know, I know I repeat it, but in, in today's world, everybody's afraid of everybody. So, you know, where's the excuse? We, um, you know, we try to point out to people our jails are not full of people that legitimately defended themselves because something was going to happen to them. Now, I hear from all the people that send us messages because they see something on our website or whatever. And if you think I'm going to run away from somebody or, you know, I'm going to try to duck when somebody's coming after me with a machete, you're crazy. But nobody's asking anybody to do that. You've already have the right to defend yourself if somebody is going to harm you. But to make it so that you don't even have to give any thought to it, that you could just go ahead and be judge and jury uh, and punish a person because you're afraid. Mm -mm. They've had hearings in both the House and the Senate. Uh, any time they wanted to, they could go vote them out of committee and then they could put them on the floor, vote them out and put them on the governor's desk. So every time they bring this up every session, they get a little bit uh, closer to passing things through. Now, I heard, uh, I read yesterday in the dispatch that Senator Uphoff said he is not going to put this on the table during lame duck session. So we'll see. You have to imagine it's an uphill battle in Ohio when you had the, uh, the uh, former Speaker of the House, just former Speaker of the House, on TV shooting a TV out in the field for his election campaign. Uh, yeah. Uh, they're just you told somebody something, don't you think? Right. Yeah. That, that went a little far. You know, um, as lawyers, Jack and I know there's restrictions on our First Amendment, you know, our free speech rights. There's restrictions on Fourth Amendment against unreasonable search and seizures. There's restrictions on almost every right. But it just seems like the Second Amendment has some pull uh, that, that the others don't. But when I hear you talk about this, it's clear to me that, that we can live in harmony, gun rights and the Second Amendment. We're just reasonable about it. And I, I'd love to hear you talk about these things. It gives me uh, some arguments when I'm walking around the next gun show <laughs> to talk to people about because I, I'm sold on it. I, I want to reduce gun violence as much as anybody. I, yeah. I fear guns, and that's why I have learned about them, and I've learned to use them, and I've introduced them. Uh, to my kids just so they don't fear them and, and they're safe so toby what's at the top of your list for the two or three worst gun bills pending right now in the state house besides yeah. stand your ground uh well stand your ground connected with the permitless carry that nobody uh you know even has to bother getting and and you know what's really nice about that one or what's terrible about that one is is it's worded as that um, you could have a permit to carry is but you wouldn't you don't have to get one if you could have had one if you would have applied mm -hmm. and my answer to that is always let's try that with our driver's license I would have got one but I didn't want to but I could have. You know, I, I would have got it. <laughs> I would have tried. I mean, it's bizarre, and yet it keeps coming up. So um, I, I think that one's awful, and it keeps creeping up. Let's be, let's be um, a little more specific about carry. Right now, I can open carry without any restrictions, correct? That's correct. So the issue is, could I have, could I concealed carry without a permit? That's the issue, right? 
Correct. Permitless carry. Yes. Permitless carry. That's correct. Yeah, I was at we I was at Tommy's diner before the pandemic, and a, a gent walks in. He's got some kind of auto, semi-automatic strap to his waist. I thought, wow, that's interesting. Scary. It is interesting. And how does it make you feel, both as one of you, you know, a, a well, my first question is, I always thought Tommy's Diner was safe. <laughs> Why does he have a gun in here? What's, what's going on? What am I missing? Right? Well, yeah. Uh, some of that, you know, from, from my perspective, is done for show and, and because they want to bully somebody. I mean, when they all show up on the state house lawn, you know, carrying their AK-47s, what is this about? You know, it, it, it's really trying to instill fear in people. And so you, you ought to be afraid. You ought to be afraid of that guy that walked in that diner because he's the boss. He came in with that, you know, powerful gun on his hip. And the, some people wouldn't agree with me on this, but I think that um, that's okay that it's carried openly, that you can see it. Because are you okay with all the people that are in there that are carrying concealed and you can't see it? So if I take my kids to the Target uh, if somebody's carrying openly, I can say, I'd rather not have my kids here. If they're carrying concealed and they're yelling at their kids at the same time that they're carrying concealed. I don't have that option. So some of my rights have been taken away because I don't have any options about who I'm standing next to that's carrying. And they're just all not as stable as we would like to believe that they are. I like the way you look at that. That's interesting. I want to go back to these gun-free zones. They are the source of derision by the gun advocates, as if the sign is just as if the sign is a way of warding off gun violence. But that's not really the purpose behind the gun risk or the gun-free zone stickers, is it? What's the purpose? Now we we hand them out. We we send them to people. Uh, it uh, says you know because when they pass concealed carry, they have the rules and regulations. I think it's still up on on the Ohio site that uh, you know what it has to say, etc. And we've handed them out to a lot of places, businesses, and we've said you know from our perspective, um, the rest of us that come into your place of business have rights as well. And we don't want to bring our family in there if we don't know that there's dozens of people or even one person in here that's carrying. And we see it as a public health issue, the same as smoking. So we're going to ask you to put this sign right next to the no smoking sign because they are both issues that we're dealing with that are the same. You know, uh, can somebody smoke at home? Uh, not smart, but they can. But if they're smoking in my presence, then I have some rights too. And it's the same way with the carrying of the guns. So, um, you know, they try to make a, a, a really big deal out of gun-free zones is where all the shootings happen. I don't have any statistics on any of that happening. What do you want or what would you ask of Ohioans to do in terms of making one little effort to reducing gun violence? I think, um, first of all, they have to be willing to talk about it. And I think in too many cases, uh, people see it as such a hot political subject that they don't want to talk about it with their families or their neighbors or, you know, whoever they go to church with, whatever. And I do think people need to talk about it and they need to realize what the gun laws are and what they aren't. But, uh, you know, one phone call makes a huge difference to a legislator's office. 
And so we always, people say, well, it won't make any difference. Yeah, it will. One phone call. And when they start getting lots of them, then they say, wait, I better ask my constituents. Maybe they won't reelect me if I'm not doing what they're asking of me. So that accumulates and it makes a difference and it takes about five minutes at most. So uh, that's a, a simple little thing that we ask them to do. Toby, is there anything else before we sign off that you want to talk about that you think is significant? Uh, no, I don't think so. Uh, we invite everybody to, you know, uh, stay in tune with us, uh, go to our website, uh, sign up on our website, and then you'll get our emails and alerts of what's happening down there at the State House on Guns, where we're asking you to pick up the phone and make that phone call. Uh, so, you know, people can sort of stay, stay connected that way. Uh, and um, just to be a participant, uh, we can't can't be silent on it. We have to be a participant. So you know, make that phone call. Go to your school board meeting and make sure they're not doing a lot of crazy things that you don't know about. <laughs> and the and the uh, website is pretty simple: Ohio Coalition Against Gun Violence. Yeah, you can get there that way. You can also it, it sometimes it, that got to be too long, and so you can also get there to it with Ohio Ceasefire. Thank you so much for your time and your uh, reasonable thoughts about gun, reducing gun violence. It's certainly something that uh, I needed to hear a little bit more about. And um, if there's anything that I can do for you or your organization, please let me know. But we okay. really appreciate you having uh, uh, having some time for us today. Yeah, Toby. Thank you. I, I know you. this has been an issue for you for a long time, Jack. And uh, I'm, I'm glad that we can be friends, John. Yes. Actually, the reality is John is one of the most reasonable human beings on the, on the face of the earth. <laughs> saying that genuinely. What an interesting uh, conversation with Toby, wasn't it? Uh, it w what I appreciate is the balance. She's not looking to take gun rights away. She's just looking to take violence away. Uh, a couple of times over my career, I've run into the issue of gun rights. I remember a gentleman that was robbing a... Uh, convenience store. He was high on uh, some type of drug and uh, shot my client. And we tried to make an argument that it was negligence. And uh, because, believe it or not, homeowners policy might cover an act of negligence. <laughs> sure. You wouldn't think that. Right, right. But we went all the way to the Supreme Court and they said, no, it doesn't matter if you point a gun at somebody. And the argument that this young man made from prison, by the way, was that his hand was so big, he was high on drugs, they didn't mean to pull the trigger. He was just trying to scare my client. But he ended up shooting her. She survived, fortunately, but the Supreme Court says, no, we're not going to cover that through insurance. So how about you? Have you had anything dealing with gun violence or gun rights? I've never had anything dealing with gun violence, but I have for the first time, just a few months back, a case where I'm trying to restore the gun rights for a friend of mine who has a few felony convictions. And as you know, or maybe people don't know, you have a felony conviction, you lose your right to own a gun. So I've applied to the court. So there must be some type of rules or regulations governing that. Maybe you can give us a quick rundown. Sure. There's a provision in the Ohio statutes that provide for regaining your gun rights. I forget what the term of art is. It's, dis it's getting rid of the disqualification, getting rid of the disability. Um, but to begin with, 
your felony convictions cannot include any type of a weapons charge. So if you were convicted of assault with a deadly weapon or murder, anything along that those lines, you're not getting your gun rights back. But if you had a felony conviction in other categories, you can, and you have to prove three things. First, that in essence, the conviction and everything that goes with it is passed. You've spent your time in jail, you're, you're done with the parole process, etc. The second is that you've you're leading a law-abiding life. And the third is that you're not otherwise precluded from law, by law, from, from having a gun. So I have a gent who, uh, his last felony conviction, and I'm going to call him my friend. He is. He, about eight years ago, he was put in jail for a drug offense, released in 2016. He is now involved in the ministry of helping other ex-offenders reintegrate into society. He's a wonderful man. He's dedicated. Um, and he wants to he wants to hunt like he used to with his father and his brothers. And I have some wonderful witnesses who will testify on his behalf. And Judge Sarah will be hearing our petition in mid-September. Yeah. So even though I'm a big one might call me a zealot in terms of reducing gun violence. I'm not anti-gun. I'm just anti-gun violence. I wonder, would it make a difference to you if his motive was not hunting guns, you know, a gun for hunting purposes, but his motive was, I want to own some guns in case the government comes knocking on my door one day. I suppose, <laughs> well, for me personally, it might. <laughs> I'd be thinking, gee, my friend has some problems here. But I don't think that would disqualify him under the law. Yeah, it doesn't matter what he wants to own the gun for. Right, yeah, that does, that's not part of the equation. That's yeah. a great point on your part. Well, I suppose if he, if he had some secret motives to join the mob, you might have a problem. But that's really not part of the statute. <laughs> now, could uh, Judge Serrett restrict the type of guns he owns, or is it all or nothing? It's all or nothing. There's nothing in the statute that talks about specifying what kind of gun ownership. Interesting. Yeah, it really is. And now here's the interesting, here's what my friend's point of view is on this. This is really good. He says, look, here I am in charge of helping these men in their transition, right? These are men who have been in jail for, I'm working with one man, he's been in, he was in jail for 35 years. He goes, so if I'm able to get my gun rights, it's, it's another illustration for these gents that if you do everything right, if you work hard, if you play by the rules, you can regain those rights that you lost. So for him, it is a big illustration of what getting back on track can do. Hey, lawyer, right. I'll be back in a few weeks with Paul Beck, Professor Emeritus of Political Science at the Iowa State University. We'll be talking about dark money and politics. I invite you to subscribe to Lawyer Up by going to our website, lawyerupcolumbus.com. You can download our podcast by using your favorite app. Until next time, remember to lawyer up. So long.